when you're forced to examine why you're saying sorry. For example, I think we have these narratives, we have these sort of stories about how we are, how we carry ourselves. When you've hurt someone, sometimes it challenges that narrative, it challenges that story. So I think that sort of makes us become a bit more defensive quite naturally when we're forced to say sorry. In this episode of Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word, we're going to be talking about a topic where there can be a reluctance to discuss and engage in a meaningful way. Having frank and critical conversations about race and racism can be uncomfortable, but the very fact many of us have been avoiding this discomfort is a privilege in itself. Where does the discomfort come from? Lots of things. An incomplete understanding of race and racism, the idea you or I may not witness overtly racist actions and therefore we conclude, maybe it's not so bad. No reflections of real-life inclusion around us in our personal lives, on our screens or in our literature. And that's not because it's not there. It's because we're choosing to ignore it. Racism is more than skin deep. It's interpersonal, ideological, internalised and institutional. Today we're going to be touching on some of these aspects. Robin D'Angelo says that whiteness is considered the norm for humanity. It's default setting. Culture only becomes something talked about in reference to non-white people. If that's to be interrupted, she says, then white people must grapple with what it means to be a member of this social group. Now, you may remember one iconic British image that circulated the internet during the Black Lives Matter protests here in the UK. It was retweeted more than 40,000 times and liked by more than 195,000 people. It shows a white Irish man, Jim Curran, a civil rights campaigner, chatting with Mo Hassan, a younger black man. Some people say it was staged and it was fake, a setup. Well, we can confirm it wasn't. Because speaking to me right now is Mo Hassan himself. Mo wears many caps, he used to work in corporate law, he moved to Lebanon and assisted with the Syrian refugee crisis, and he now works in the public sector in London. Hi Hannah, I'm really excited for this conversation. Now before we get started, talk us through this image that went kind of viral at the beginning of the year. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite interesting. First of all, I just want to say I didn't plan on going to this protest. And I think the reason why, like m- many black people, it's just it felt like another life had been claimed and people were only sort of waking up about it now. Um, we've seen this with Trayvon Martin. We've seen this with so many different killings in the US and also in the UK, actually, that people don't really seem to recognize. So... Two of my friends had never been to a protest before. They were also slightly younger and a bit more inexperienced, and they were also taking more of an interest in issues around race, a topic that we hadn't actually discussed. So after a bit of persuading, I agreed to go down and join them. And it was a mission to find them, but we eventually met by the Churchill statue. I ended up giving a speech on the need to come together, on different ways the movement would be undermined and different ways we've been historically divided and marginalized. And after that, I went to sit down behind the Churchill statue and I saw this man with a cane and a really nice thing he had around his neck, just a piece of paper with a clip on saying racism is the issue. And everyone seemed to be taking photos with him. And I just thought to myself, it would be really nice to have a chat with this man. So I scooted over close to him. He sat down. I said, hi, my name's Mo. And we just basically spoke about everything under the sun, including the parallels between the experience of Irish people in the UK, particularly during the period where you had signs like no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, and the parallels of that struggle and the struggle of black people in the UK and the US. And someone just happened to snap a photo at the time Um, When I went home, an old high school friend of mine texted me saying, is this you? Um, And I went on Twitter only to see that this thing had blown up. Um, And it was a bit, it was a bit strange. Um, I've had maybe one or two viral moments in my life, but this was definitely the the biggest one by far. Um, And yeah, it was, it was really interesting how everyone had an opinion, how everyone thought it was staged, not everyone, but a lot of people. And so I just kind of put my hand up and said, yes, that's me. And I later did an Instagram uh, post on it with a caption, um, speaking about my thoughts on the whole thing. Amazing. I love that you said you've had more than one viral moment in your life. We'll have to get to that later. 
And I just kind of wanted to ask about a lot of the news websites described you as kind of a black student or a black blogger. Mm. And none of that really gets across the full picture of who you are. How would you describe yourself when it comes to kind of this relationship with race? That's a really interesting one. I think, firstly, I just want to say that this whole George Floyd moment, the awakening for a lot of people, has led me to become a lot more introspective about what I think it means to be black. Um, so, yeah, obviously, you know, one way I define myself is um, I'm of African origin. I'm British Sudanese. Um, I can speak Arabic and French. Um, so, I'm, I'm, you know, of African and Arab heritage. Uh, my grandmother's Nubian, which is the oldest civilization, older than the pharaohs. But I would also define myself a bit wider than that. I would say that I often describe myself uh, as someone who's resilient, someone who's confident, someone who's kind, someone that stands up for people when everyone else in the room stays silent. And I've never shied away from deep conversations or being myself. I like diversity. I like the fact that I can probably switch from watching reality TV to a documentary and still enjoy both. And past being a black blogger, um, you know, I've worked in, in, in different sectors, as you said in your opening. One thing I did like, though, is they did mention a uh, podcaster, which is nice. I do have a podcast on the side. So, yeah, I, w- I would define myself in a different way. And I'd also like to add, I think the word black is quite broad what does it actually mean to be black? That doesn't take an account of class. That doesn't take an account of um, what country you're from. That doesn't take an account of religious background. There's so many dimensions to being black. I don't think you can just look at someone's skin color and be like, right, black blogger. Um, We're not a monolith. We're all individuals even if we have very similar experiences. There's a couple of things I want to pull out there. And you said, obviously, there's more than one way to be black. And I wonder what you make of terms like BAME or BME or BIPOC that kind of shove people into one category of non-white. I mean, what do you think of those? I think BAME is a very corporate term. I've I've definitely used it myself a lot. I've sat in a lot, a lot of sort of diversity panels, whether that just be giving advice for um, improving diversity in your hiring and i and i i find the term bame slightly irritating just because a black people don't experience the same problems in the same way for a whole host of reasons that might be the way you speak or the way you dress or the background you come from or your command of english or the language that you're working in i would say that although asians and again that's an incredibly broad term um experience discrimination and experience issues they're not necessarily the same struggles um, as black people and then that word minority ethnic as well you could fit everything under minority ethnic um, which then forces you to interrogate what does white actually mean if you're for example someone from the gypsy traveler community if you're roma for example are you a a minority ethnic person although you have um, you know white skin if you're a Hungarian Jew, are you minority ethnic? So I, I find the term BAME problematic. I understand why we use it in a workplace setting. And it's quite handy to to sort of group everyone together that's not white. But um, at times, I feel like it airbrushes the struggle of, let's say, black people out of the picture, particularly if you're like the only black person on your floor or in your department. That's really interesting. Thank you, man. I think what you say about what does it mean to be white is also quite soul-searching question because I think there's ways that there's good white and then there's like non-good white in the sense that if you're a Kosovan Muslim that appears to have white skin, do you count as Caucasian? Well, you don't share perhaps the values of what's seen as whiteness, which is Christianity. You know, where do you fit? That's, yeah, that's something we definitely need to all think about. And I just wanted to ask you, In your experience, obviously you said you've sat on panels and you've had these conversations and you mentioned about yourself, you love diving into these sorts of things. Why do you think race is such an uncomfortable topic? I feel like we can talk about gender a lot more now, um, differently abled bodies, but race seems to be a little bit taboo still to the point that some people interpret talking about it as rude. It's a really interesting one. I think one of the issues with race is it's intersectional, which makes it incredibly hard to unpick the issue. The, the, the different issues. So I often find when you when you approach race, people often say things like, yes, but what about class? 
um, or what about, uh, let's say, culture? What about religion? Wh- which are, you know, in some ways inextric- inextricably tied to race. Um, I think race is misunderstood and it permeates all our lives. It's something you see. So unlike sexual orientation or let's say financial status, both two very important things in a person's life. And I'm not saying that if you're of a different sexual orientation, you're not discriminated against. But there's something about race that's almost immediate. You can see if someone is not from the dominant race, whatever that be, or instead of using the word dominant, majority race. In the context of the UK, it's white, let's say white white English. So if you're in a room with 10, when 10 people, nine of them are white and one of them's black, or let's say four of them are BAME, to use that term, and the rest are from the majority uh, race, which is white, immediately you can see an apparent divide. Um, And that's quite powerful when you see that potential divide. And I think that in itself makes it a very divisive topic. Um, I think race is also intrinsic to our identity and our history. We're talking about oppression. We're talking about the need for recognition. We're talking about the dominant and destructive narratives surrounding race. You don't have that same baggage with money. And I think with gender, gender, again, is, is a tricky one, because if we're talking about let's say, issues around being transgender, I think that complicates the picture slightly and more nuances is, is required for that debate. But if, we, if we're just talking about just gender equality in general, there's scope for more unity. There's more intersectionality, I think, in, in that piece. Whereas in... No, I, I take that back, actually. I think there is, there, is, there is scope for intersectionality with race. It's just, I feel like, on face value you do create a dichotomy where it can be black versus white or this versus white. And people, people are scared by that. But I think that the heart of the issue when you're debating race is this concept of privilege. People don't like the fact that other factors outside of their control potentially have led to their success or the fact that they've benefited from an unlevel playing field. And I think race exposes all of those things. So to summarize, why is race such a thorny issue? It's an issue that's deeply personal to us. Um, it's potentially very divisive, especially if you just look at it in visual terms. And it brings up issues around privilege, which makes us realize that we've benefited from a system that is inherently unjust towards certain groups of people. And therefore, people don't want to approach it. I think that's so interesting what you say about the idea of people are unhappy or unsatisfied and get defensive around the idea that perhaps they haven't earned their own way in the world, which privilege isn't necessarily saying you haven't, it's simply saying there are some factors that perhaps helped you along the way. And one of the things that I think many younger white people have been struggling with is talking to people that are white that have been through you know, poverty, they have been through struggles, they know what it's like to not have food at the table. And trying to explain that I've personally found quite difficult, because, you know, I'm a middle class white girl going, Oh, well, you know, it's your privilege that's got you this far. And someone's going, Yeah, well, I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to do this and do that. Obviously, you've spoken about this with a number of people. I wonder if there's any way that you've found to have this conversation and make it more palatable for people? Or is that the point that it shouldn't be palatable? It should be uncomfortable. It should make you think. Uh, it's a really good topic and it's a really good question actually i think there's a skill around having uncomfortable conversations and one thing i've personally realized is that people often get defensive partly because of their experience around the narrative uh, of the topic you're discussing so let's say privilege they may have experienced being shut down in a debate and it's often in the case when I speak to, let's say, um, a white person that's slightly defensive of this concept of privilege, they may have not been shut down by another black person or another ethnic minority. They may have been shut down by another white person. And, and they've often used terms like check your privilege or you don't know what you're talking about. So I think one of the, the best ways to go about it in, in my point of view is to have an open mind and ask open-ended questions and try and come from a place of understanding 
rather than making uh, statements, especially if they're done in like accusatory way, just ask questions. I think interrogate people's ideas. Um, and bit by bit, I think people begin to open up and they show you their view of the world, their model of thinking. And it's a lot easier to unpick uh, bias. It's a lot easier to expose ignorance. It's a lot easier to get someone on side when you come from a place of curiosity as a pl- a, 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 a opposed to a place from animosity. And I think obviously it's a lot easier said than done, especially when you know, you're coming from a group let's say a marginalized group or the issue is really close to home and that doesn't just go for race that goes for everything that goes for the israeli-palestinian conflict that goes for discussions around rape that goes for discussions around all sorts of things so my advice would be approach the conversation with the aim of seeking to understand lead with questions counter arguments in my experience are rarely absorbed at least not early on in the conversation use real examples and hypotheticals to sort of examine that person's thinking. I would say avoid any form of shaming or shouting. Um, That's just not going to achieve anything. And share your thoughts, share your thinking. Encourage people to examine the origin of their blanket statements or their generalizations. Um, And people harboring prejudice, in my view, often start to really question themselves and their own assumptions. And you'll, you'll find that they may not um, agree with you there and then. They may, they may still push back on there and then in order to save face, but they will very often privately reconsider um, what they're talking about, even if they hold, um, you know, stubborn, suddenly hold on to like outdated or offensive beliefs. At least I've found that to be my experience. And I'm, I'm talking about people that are like really set in their ways um yeah that would be the way I sort of approach it Hassan, very wise words there and I loved what you said about kind of unpicking bias and I think one of the places there is perhaps a lot of bias but we don't investigate it as much is the workplace and spaces that we work and I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on professionalism and professional kind of behavior and outlook and Yomi and Elizabeth put it really well in this book Slay in Your Lane And they say standards of professionalism are built around the default person expected to work in that space, which in most positions of power is a white man. How far do you think people that don't tick that box of being a white bloke have to crown themselves into that space or put on a different face or effectively put on armour, change their voice, change the way they dress to fit in? And if they do, what impact is that having on our workspaces and our productivity? Okay, there are a couple of things. I think firstly... If you look statistically um, at people with foreign names or people from certain backgrounds, they don't tend to get the job. Even if they have the same qualifications and the same CVs, there are many studies on this. And so what ends up happening is people try their hardest to fit through that small crack in the door. You're told, keep your head down, don't rock the boat, don't say anything controversial, dress well that's one thing i've i've often found particularly in corporate spaces if you dress well it's almost like people are a little bit surprised especially if you dress better than they and they are if you speak in a formal way like i'm speaking now with a certain accent your ideas are often received now people will say oh well that's that's just class but the difference is i think particularly for black people you have to work twice as hard to overcome what certain stereotypes there are about you. For example, I've been in office environments where on the one occasion that I've chosen to come in in jeans, a hoodie, and trainers, and even put my hood up, someone has made a passing comment or a joke saying, oh, you look like you're going to rob someone. When my white colleagues come into work looking like that every day, I had a really weird moment the other day where I was going through my wardrobe And I was thinking about how I used to dress versus now. And if I look at myself when I was like 15, I mean, it's terrible either way, but it was mainly really oversized sports gear, um, basketball shoes. I don't even think I owned a pair of like smart shoes. And eventually I started to mature and wear clothes that fit me. But I looked at my wardrobe and I I said, why do I have so many TM Lewin shirts? I'm not that big of a fan of TM Lewin, although they make good shirts. And I thought, 
there was a period where I must have become a corporate drone. I looked through my wardrobe and I was like, oh my God, it's full of TM Lewin shirts. That's partly to fit into the workplace, but I think that's also what ends up happening to, to black people and just minorities in general is you adopt the culture to such an extent, you almost lose a piece of your own identity. And that piece of your identity may be in the way you dress. That piece of your identity may be in the way you speak. It may be in even the things you enjoy listening to. Your social circles change. Um, it's a strange one. And I think there's also a bit of, um, there's, something that, there's something strange that also happens when you start working in certain sectors um, where people challenge your blackness, if that makes sense. So, for example, if I see someone I used to go to school with, if I'm in a certain area of Northwest London or South London, I can speak the slang. I used to speak like that. And somewhere along the line with education and just my own personal choice, I speak like the way I'm speaking now. When I switch, when I code switch to speak like that with some of my old friends that have kept that way of speaking, either because they didn't enter those areas of the workplace or they didn't choose the same life as I've chosen, people are so shocked. And they're like, oh, I've never heard you speak like a black person before. And I'm like, who's to say that black people speak in shorthand and in slang? Who's to say that um, speaking standard English, speaking with an English accent has the, uh, you know, who's to say that white people have the monopoly on that? So I've often fought quite hard with really good friends of mine, really smart people. And this is slightly a class thing as well, but it's intrinsically tied to race. They'll say, oh, you love going to those white areas. I was like, like what? Like Hyde Park, uh, like nice parks or a nice restaurant. Since when did that become white? So I think, you know, professionalism is, is almost like a, a bit of a prison for a lot of ethnic minorities. You're damned if you do and you're damned, damned if you don't. If you do, for long enough, you may end up losing yourself slightly uh, and you may end up being kind of rejected by people that haven't gone down that same path that look like you. And if you don't, your credibility is shot. You probably won't get the job. And on the off day that you do choose to dress a bit differently, even if everyone else dresses like that every day, strange uh, assumptions, you know, disguised as jokes or banter are made about you you described it as a prison there how surprised do you think companies charities corporations institutions would be to hear a term like that about their spaces that they expect people to come to and try their hardest it's interesting um so i used to work at the ministry of justice for a brief period of time and i met a deputy director there who was at the black lives matter and i worked in her team and she was brilliant. But I remember making this point about the fear of rocking the boat. Um, it was a particularly white team. And there, was a, uh, there were maybe t three people in the whole sort of unit that are black. And two of them attended the call. And one of them mentioned this idea of, despite the team culture being very open-minded, very politically aware, very liberal, however you want to describe it, she felt like she couldn't speak her mind. Uh, and the reason why is not because her, you know, co-workers were unsupportive, but she was worried about being perceived as that angry, hostile black woman. And sort of perceptions form the prison that you're around. I think a lot of leaders would be shocked, but I think a lot of leaders also, they don't quite understand. They, they say things like, oh, well, you know, just speak your mind. Going back to who I am, I've, I've kind of cultivated that about myself. I've been less afraid of taking risks and I've been someone to speak my mind. But in that, I have a lot of privilege. Why? Because I'm young. I don't have to worry about a mortgage. I don't have children. I don't, I'm not a single mother. There are all these other factors that I think leadership don't really think about when it comes to putting yourself in a slightly compromised position when it comes to giving critical feedback. And I will say this, and this isn't conspiracy, this is just my experience. When someone who's a minority raises a point, even if it's constructive criticism, it is received differently 
than when a white counterpart makes the same point. And it's for that exact reason why when you had the radio silence about the George Floyd brutal murder, that minorities within the workplace were very reluctant to rock the boat and they kind of put pressure on white senior leaders to say, hey, this is not good enough. They put pressure on some of their colleagues to write an email to the CEO or to the permanent secretary or to the senior partner saying, this isn't good enough. Because from their experience, they know that when it comes to delivering criticism, when it comes to challenging, the, the, the voice of a, of a white person carries different weight and also it received in a different way and people are less defensive for whatever reason. I mean that's majorly messed up and thank you so much for sharing that. I wonder Mo, we will get to your stories I promise, I just was wondering obviously you mentioned George Floyd there and Breonna Taylor and all of the names of the people that we shouldn't be able to have so many names on a list and you said we're putting pressure on leaders in particular kind of white senior staff members at work do you honestly think, obviously we're recording now in October 2020, that things have changed since sort of June when, when stuff was really kind of kicking off and heating up? I think the conversation's changed. People older than myself, especially those who are around, you know, in the 60s and earlier, will say things have obviously changed. Because, you know, the fact that we're even having this debate, that we're entertaining this debate is a thing. Other people may be more cynical and say, we've had versions of this discussion every year. Black History Month rolls around or someone dies or is killed in a brutal way. And we kind of have this chat about race. Have things changed since June? I think so. I don't think it, they've necessarily changed um, so much because let's say a particular state in America has chose to defund its police or certain legislative changes may have happened in, in different countries. I think it's changed because for the first time in a very long time, for whatever reason, white people are taking on the burden of this debate. They're taking on the burden of those killings. It's no longer black people kind of WhatsApping each other and talking about how awful this murder is. There's something different. I'll give you an example. After I posted that viral um, photo, a friend of mine, I, I won't name her on the podcast, who I went to university with and I'm still really good friends with, she had very different attitudes uh, towards race. I would even argue, I wouldn't say she, necessarily racist or anything, but she would make certain jokes that you know most people wouldn't say are, are appropriate. And for whatever reason, she decided off the back of that photo to go on a protest. She went on that protest and she had a, a placard to the effect of white silence is violence. And her parents and her family just sort of sat her around the table and said, you know, what is all of this about? And kind of accused her of being someone that likes to jump on the bandwagon or attention seeking. And so it was at that moment that she had a really honest conversation with her family, a very uncomfortable conversation with her family about race around the dinner table. Um, and I remember her coming to me and asking for advice about, you know, what do you do? How do you have these like awkward discussions, especially with people that you're close to? A number of other friends of mine have even lost some friends because they've realized just how ignorant their friends are or how unwilling their friends are to, to not necessarily change their opinion, but just even look at a different perspective leave the, the dominant narrative that is, you know, for example, oh, George Floyd committed an act of fraud. That shouldn't matter in that case. Or people are just looting or, you know, it's an honest mistake from police or there's no in structural racism. I think, that, I think the difference is for the first time, people's immediate and intimate environments, and when I say people, I'm talking about white people, they are forced to have these really uncomfortable discussions. Um, some of that is voluntarily on the people that have decided to read more, that have decided to listen more. And some of that isn't on the part of the people that are, you know, in very comfortable holding onto their views and not looking broadly. And I think that's what's changed since June that we haven't seen in the past. Mo Hassan, you are one of the most interesting guests we've ever had. And I think 
we're going to need to move to your sorry so we don't take up all of your time but thank you so much for sharing that and I very much agree with you I think the conversation has shifted since June and hopefully that will continue to evolve and change and, and you know we can tackle these things together. You very kindly agreed to share your sorries with us. And Mo, the first one is a sorry you waited for but never came. And this is about um, your time back in school, right? Yes, this is an interesting one. I had to I had to dive deep for this one. One quick book recommendation that I would make off the back of this is Natives by Akala. Mm-hmm. And in that, he's got a chapter around, uh, you know, the link between kids from ethnic minority backgrounds, how they're graded and how they're disproportionately put into sort of special educational needs classes. So I would say the sorry that never came essentially was from a set of misguided, ignorant, and in some cases, malicious teachers, the first set of them, I'd say, for putting me in a sort of SEN, special educational needs class. And they vehemently argued that I'd never make it out to high school without special assistance, and just really awful. Um, luckily, I managed to have a very strong mum that kind of persisted and, 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 and pushed, and I had a lot of support from my family. And I got like specially tested and found that my reading age was two years above um, the average, um, and I was moved out of that class. I was then in a situation in high school where at the time there was something called triple science for GCSEs, and we had something called the year nine SATs, and I needed to score a level seven. And again, um, I was actively prevented from applying for that class. And I was told I wasn't capable of getting a level seven. And I was put down and made to feel really bad for aspiring uh, to achieve something higher. And I achieved that level seven, and I ended up in that class, and only to find out many of the other sort of clever kids didn't actually score a seven. So I guess the sorry that never came is a sorry for not necessarily underestimating me, but actively putting me down. And um, I think, yeah, it's almost as if they resented that I had ambition that didn't fit within their, within their chart or within their narrow predictions of me. And I see that happen to a lot of um, children. And I see that happen to, I have so many friends that are particularly those that are ethnic minorities that were put in those sorts of classes that were told for uh, a really long time, you'll never make it. And many of them are doctors, lawyers, engineers. Uh, they've gone on to, to go to really good universities. So yeah, that's the story that never came. And for anyone listening to this, please do believe in yourself. I love that this links really well with at the beginning, right at the top, you said you would kind of consider yourself a resilient person. And you, you were young at the time that this happened, and yet you didn't turn around and go, oh, well, I am crap you know, clearly they can't do anything. You said, hell no, I I have a lot to give and a lot to offer and I'm going to work my ass off. Why do you think you didn't turn back and you didn't turn around and sit down and go and done? Privilege. So just like we speak about privilege among white people and race, everyone's got their privilege. And I think my privilege is probably just coming from a family of strong women um, and, and having having a good kind of outlook um, I, I was supported, like I said. I think some of it might be natural, but I would like to think that for whatever reason, having good examples growing up uh, of what being resilient means. Um, and also there was an element of naivety. I think when you're young, you you have these sort of lofty dreams. And I often find any time I've achieved something big or impressive or whatever you call it it's partly been to just down to the fact that I haven't accepted other people's limitations and more importantly I haven't internalized what those limitations are and that's probably what kept me kept me pushing maybe it was my lack of knowledge of the system the fact that I didn't respect those teachers that much I was lucky I was, I was well supported throughout the process I know unfortunately many really capable and and, and great people that have unfortunately you know landed themselves in difficult situations it's because they didn't have that support and they had probably circumstances a lot worse than mine privilege it's not about so it's an interesting point when you spoke about um white people that like have gone through a lot poverty all sorts of things i think privilege is not about so much about what you have endured it's about what you haven't had to go through you know and i often see like for example um, let's say someone would be like, oh, look at Diane Abbott. She's in a position of power. Um, she's 
wealthy or whatever, relatively wealthy, and then you take um, a white working class kid from a council estate, no, no education, no, I don't know, fill in the blank, like a lot more problems that Diane Abbott doesn't have. And they'll say, are you telling me that Diane Abbott doesn't have privilege and, and he does? But the thing people are missing is it's saying that white kid, when he walks into a certain environment, he's not judged on the color of his skin. He's not second guessed for being of a different color or people kind of clutching their bag a bit more tightly. It might be because of what he's wearing, fair enough. But I guess what I'm saying is the idea is there's certain things that you don't have to go through just partly because of who you are. And that extends to being a man as well. Um, you know, I don't have to worry as much when, I, when I'm at late at night and I'm approaching my car. I, I don't have to think about if a woman is being uh, a bit forward with me, you know, like what this could potentially lead to or is this a physical threat? Or if I'm on a dating app, for example, you know, can I go back to this person's place? Do I have to text like 10 friends? It's more about what you don't have to go through. I wonder if you bumped into any of those teachers that held you back. Would you say anything now, do you think, or would you let your credentials speak for themselves? You know, that's a really interesting uh, question. I did bump into a few of the helpful teachers. Mm. And there are a few things that kind of came out that, that I've kind of achieved and that I've done that, they, that the unhelpful teachers or the horrible teachers would be aware of. But to be honest, I think... Forgiveness is probably the most selfish thing that you can do for yourself. And I mean that in the sense that we often see forgiveness as this kind of altruistic act, but it's, it's actually really healing. So no, I don't feel the need to, to go back to those teachers and prove them wrong and say, you doubted me and look what I've achieved now, or to be nasty to them. If anything, I just pity them. And I just hope that the children that they're responsible for, you know, find a way through. And would you have any advice for anyone that's a teacher now? Yeah, uh, I would say if you're a teacher, your job is to unlock a child's potential. Yes, you've got 30 kids to manage, you're under-resourced, you're often underpaid, um, you spend a good amount of your holiday or time off marking exams. There's a lot of pressure on teachers and there are a lot of good ones that I think it's important to, to add. But understand that a child's potential extends far beyond a set of grades or levels or, or letters. Understand that there are so many things going on in a kid's life that may be affecting them in the classroom. Understand that although you have a set curriculum and a set time, school in a way is a place of socialization and the legacy of your classroom isn't just them passing a test or not. It's their relationship with math. It's their relationship with history. It's how they view themselves. You could potentially be a really damaging a child's self-esteem by making an offhanded comment about their weight during a, a, a PE lesson or calling them dumb or calling them slow. So you've got a lot of power as a teacher. And I think as long as you can be mindful of what's affecting them outside of the classroom. Also be mindful that, you know, you're, you're shaping these young people's lives. Uh, you're, in a good, you're in a good place. That's so true. School isn't just a place to learn, you know. It's a place that we find our identity and what that is in relation to others and how we act and our values and all those sorts of things. So incredibly wise words there. And Mo, your story that you should have given but didn't is also um, a school-based example. And it's about a friend um, that I think didn't have a very nice time in primary and secondary school. Yes, this one I feel quite bad about. And I think this probably goes against the way I described myself in the beginning as someone that stands up for someone even when everyone else is silent. And this is a case that I didn't. Um, so I remember primary school, yeah, years five and six for those not familiar with the UK system, that's ages 10 and 11. Uh, there was a girl in my school that I think is a sous chef now at a really good restaurant. I met her on the train a while ago. But she had a few habits that people mercilessly teased her for. People were horrible to her. And no one wanted to sit next to her in class. And we had a seating plan that would be there for the rest of the year. And I offered to sit next to her but I made her feel like I was doing her this massive favor. I showed how reluctant I was 
I didn't really speak out for her. I didn't, I didn't stand up against the people that were bullying her. I kind of said, that's not very nice. I didn't really make a, a real effort to protect her or shield her. And I think one of the, the worst feelings, probably, if I, if I were to put myself in her shoes, isn't so much the insults that people throw your way, but is the, the fact that the only person that has chosen to sit next to you wants nothing to do with you and is irritated by the fact that they've chosen to be kind. Even, even the way I'm speaking about it now is ridiculous. The fact that you've sat next to someone isn't an act of kindness. She's a human being. And yeah, San, I'm, I'm sorry for, for not sticking up for you in, in primary school and part of high school. I think it's interesting the way you speak about this because hearing it as an outside observer, although yes, you were reluctant, sitting next to her kind of was an act of kindness in a way because nobody else was doing it. And actually, yes, you were being an ass about it but you still sat there, you know, you still sat next to that person every day and you showed up and you kind of proved that you were going to be there. Even if you didn't want to be, you were still going to do it. And I wonder what kind of weight or feelings Sana would attach to that situation. I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I met her on the train, I would say about a year ago. Oh, wow. And that was a really interesting experience. Um, I saw someone kind of staring at me and I would stare back at them and they kind of look familiar, but not really. And we got off the train and we, we had a chat. Um, and yeah, so she's a sous chef now and she seems to be doing well. But I will say that level of bullying has such a brutal impact on a person's confidence. And I, and I would say to people, you know, if you are a bully, just, just think about how you're damaging that person's future. I've seen people that have been bullied really badly in school and I can honestly say like even years later when they've gone on to achieve great things there's a part of them that never really comes back it's almost like they're a shell of their former self Um, and some people don't recover from it and some people even commit suicide because of it so I'd say be really careful and if possible to the extent that it's safe because some bullying is you know physical stand up for that other person or at the very least make sure that you're not part of that circle that loves to gossip or that puts people down. Be the bigger person. I'm curious, Mo, if you could go back, do you think you would act differently as that sort of, um, I suppose, how old you must have been, six or seven? Yeah, so, yeah, te- um, yeah, six and, yeah, five. I think you're age 10 and 11 at that age. 10 and 11 even, I have no idea. <laughs> would I be different? I mean, it's hard to say, Um I mean, if I could go back knowing what I know now and how it would have affected Sana uh, and the sort of character traits that I've developed over time, yes, in a heartbeat. But I think, you know, it's easy for me to say. I think when you're younger, you value different things, unfortunately, like being popular or how you're viewed. Yeah, I think a lot of people want to fit in. Almost just fitting in. You know, make sure I'm not the one that people don't want to sit with. If I laugh along, then perhaps at least I save myself. It's almost like a preservation thing. Yeah, and also, I know it sounds strange, but some of the things, well, I have to be careful, I don't expose Sana on here, but some of the things that Sana was bullied for are, in hindsight, you know, they're quite minor things. They're not, they're not great habits, but they're, not, they're very minor things, and it doesn't justify that level of bullying. But yeah, if I could go back, I would definitely stand up for her a lot more I think most people would in my position thank you so much for sharing that Mo that's really generous of you to kind of share your thoughts with us I think everybody's that has been to school has seen something that perhaps now as adults we would change but not doing something I imagine is something many of us can relate to and Mo finally you very kindly agreed to share a sorry that really meant something to you and this is about saying sorry to somebody that you used to really love right yes so I remember we we, uh, we had dinner recently and uh, I, I spoke to you about this particular sorry or this particular moment. This was someone that I loved. It was someone that I dated uh, for a number of years and we had broken up on, you know, sort of amicable terms and sort of complicated the situation by, you know, um, continue to continue to be intimate with each other. And there was a period, there was an extended period of time where we decided not to speak to cut a long story short, we ended up having a conversation for a number of hours about the past and how we felt about each other. And it was at one moment where I 
recognized for the first time how much pain and hurt I had caused this person. And I just simply said, I'm really sorry for hurting you. And it was at that moment that kind of unlocked all of our disagreements and our arguments. And it was beautiful in the sense that it was an incredibly unfiltered conversation. And I would encourage everyone to at least have one of those types of conversations. It could be with a parent. It could be with a sibling. It could be with a girlfriend, whatever, a partner, a colleague. There are so many things that are unsaid and there's so much baggage that we carry from our previous relationships, platonic and romantic. And sometimes giving someone the space to air it all out and giving yourself the permission to speak about where you're coming from, your perspective, um, is probably one of the most vulnerable things you can do, but it's incredibly rewarding. So that's the sorry that I gave that meant a lot to me personally. And I think that's there's something about saying sorry and really meaning it, but there's also another thing about understanding why you're saying sorry and understanding the impact of your actions. And I'll be honest, I'm, I know how to write a good sorry, but I've written many sorry texts or emails or messages or even conversations where I haven't fully understood the gravity of what I've done. I haven't really understood why the other person's hurt. Mm. And it's come across as genuine. And in some ways I've, I've kind of made it this kind of intellectual exercise of thinking, right, maybe I've missed something that, you know, they're really upset about. But it's until you can see in someone's eyes why they're so hurt, why they're so upset with you. And it's until you can be fully transparent about, you know, why you think you're not sorry, we can kind of close that gap and give an apology that actually means something. Mo, I love you so much for sharing this. It's funny, most people pick a sorry that means something to them. It's a sorry that's been given. And I think you and Melanie are the only guests that have picked a sorry that you gave, um, which I love and I think is incredibly intimate of you to share. So thank you. And I think your point about understanding the sorry is so integral and it's something that we do continuously all the time. We say sorry. Sometimes we think we really, really do mean sorry and we mean it but perhaps we don't get why. We don't know the hurt we've caused. We don't know the extent of, you know, the impact that our actions have had. And it sounds like you had a conversation that genuinely changed the way you thought about your behaviour in the past and kind of maybe changed that going forward. Would that be fair to say? It's a, it's a, it's a tricky one. I definitely think it's changed my approach in terms of being less stubborn. <laughs> I can be quite stubborn sometimes. And I used to be of the view that I'm not saying sorry. Has it changed my behavior? Probably, probably for the better. I still find myself making mistakes, ones that I could have easily avoided, but I've let ego or some sort of weird view of myself get in the way. So yeah, if I'm, if I'm being entirely honest, I think that experience definitely, it, it's a good reference point for me to hold myself to a higher standard, but I'm by no means perfect. Uh, and I would say to anyone that struggles with being being vulnerable, that's something that I'm really working on. Uh, and I would say it's probably a weakness of mine, but if I can have a heartfelt discussion like that and, and really find a way to tap into why I'm saying sorry and understand why the other person's hurt, then you can too. I also wonder if there's a bit of sort of natural defensiveness we feel when we find out or we discover we have hurt somebody. Um, and especially when that's not your intention, because I think your first instinct is to be like, I didn't mean it. That came across wrong rather than being like, gosh, I'm really, really sorry. I said that that wasn't my intention. Like the first thing we do is kind of almost try and defend ourselves and defend our actions. Definitely. I think when you're forced to examine why you're saying sorry, for example, I think we have these narratives. We have these sort of stories that we that we tell ourselves about how we are, how we carry ourselves when you've hurt someone sometimes it challenges that narrative it challenges that story so for example in the case of sana let's say although it was a long time ago um, that does challenge that narrative that i gave about myself that i'm someone that stands up for people even when it's not um expedient to do so in in this romantic example you know it challenges that narrative that i'm a kind and caring person so i think that sort of makes us become a bit more defensive quite naturally uh, when we're forced 
to say sorry. And then also it depends a lot on the way you've been raised and your your experiences. If let's say someone has grown up with a lot of uncertainty and perhaps conflict in their life, they might view saying sorry as being attributable to to power. Some people view apology as some form of power dynamic and therefore they don't want to give up any ground. Um, And then there's some other toxic narratives that I think particularly men have sort of absorbed about how sorry makes you weak, how it makes you less attractive, how it makes you seem needy. There's all sorts of things that we've kind of absorbed, baggage that we're holding around sorries that we should have given, sorries that we should have received. And one last thing I do want to say on that point, try to understand that your reference point for what's acceptable, what's hurtful, what's necessary isn't necessarily appropriate. We we sort of perceive everything through our prism. So a more recent example, uh, again, it's uh, with someone that I was dating. She recently sent me a long text um, stating how she was slightly annoyed by uh, a few things that I had done. I paused and I wrote a very sort of heartfelt apology although that is a sorry that I probably have to work on a bit more but my initial reaction was what's the big deal I wouldn't have been annoyed about that that's not such a big thing she's slightly overreacting um so before you say to yourself this person's overreacting or they're just being a baby or they're being oversensitive realize that you're basing that on your benchmark and your benchmark is through your own set of experiences um, so yeah, part of apologizing is also stepping into that other person's world and accepting their standards or their threshold for being outraged or hurt or whatever it is. Hmm, it's true. We're all kind of the star of our own story, aren't we? And sometimes we can forget that. Uh, Mo, this has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so, so much for being part of Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word today. Mo Hassan, incredibly wise words there. Thank you. As always, we have an anonymous sorry for you here on Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word. Here's today's. I'm sorry I didn't say anything when your friends made fun of you for being white inside. I felt conflicted over what that meant, being white myself, and didn't want my skin to be an insult. Now I see it wasn't the colour that mattered, but what they were doing. There are many ways to be you. I'm sorry I wasn't a better friend to you. Thank you for sharing. This is Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word, created by myself, Hannah Tooley, edited and mixed by Big Sound Audio. Our music has been created by the extremely talented David Dudney. Check out his band, The Best Part, on Spotify.